Over the last 18 months, the General Services Administration has been asking some hard questions, mostly about itself. What does the Federal Acquisition Service need to look like? Does the current regional structure still make sense? A group of managers and line employees delved into this and a host of other questions in an attempt to design the future of FAS. For how the revamped Federal Acquisition Service is shaping up, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to its commissioner, Sonny Hashmi. A lot of those traditional ways of delivering uh, service you know, are changing. And so as we looked at the work that we do and how we're organized, we discovered that a lot of the customers that, uh, that we work with are expecting a different service model. They're expecting us to work with them in a one-on-one capacity. They, under- they, they expect us to understand their mission very deeply. And they, they want to work with teams that, uh, that they're comfortable with and they, they know. And those teams need to have a deeper understanding of their mission. So all those things coming together, we also recognize that the talent as we move forward that we're going to need and the expertise they're going to need is located all over the country in all jurisdictions and all uh, locations across the country. And so we asked ourselves, how do we organize ourselves for the future that takes advantage of this amazing talent pool across the country that we can tap into, but at the same time align ourselves more more closely to how our customers are organized. And uh, with that in mind, we took on a fairly long process, uh, including the voices of many people at all levels of the organization, and in a bottom-up approach, rethought how the future organization uh, structure could look like. And that's led to today, which uh, I'm very excited to share that in, uh, just in a few weeks' time, we're going to be transitioning into a new organizational structure where uh, major organizations within FAS, including AAS and CASE, are going to be aligned to customer segments. So now we're going to have teams that are fully aligned to a customer's mission. That team and the customer working closely together are going to be purely focused on achieving mission outcomes that that customer cares about. And I'm confident that over time this is going to uh, lead to better service delivery and access to talent and opportunities within the organization for people who are looking for uh, the next, uh, next step in their careers. One of the reasons why this probably developed the way it did is because – the Army has bases in Huntsville, Alabama, and then they have bases in, you know, you pick it, Seattle, Washington, and then they have bases in Hawaii, and then they have bases in Europe. And you need different people in different time zones to serve that. Is that still going to be the case? I want to make it very clear, and uh, this has been some level of, uh, you know, these questions come up. We are not going to change where our folks are located. We're a global organization. We have folks all over the world, and they, those folks will remain in those theaters to support our customers. And in fact, being next to our customer, being close to their mission, is actually one of the driving factors for us to do this change. And so we're going to continue to have these teams located worldwide, very close to where the mission is, is being executed, including the United States. We're going to have team members all over the country. This in no way means that these teams will have to come together physically and be co-located in one location. And by having this distributed model, we're going to be able to provide not just around-the-clock support, but also support uh, from different parts of the country where we may have different expertise. As an example, we're seeing a lot of uh, you know, different uh, colleges and universities that are, ex- that, are, that are developing expertise in different areas. By having uh, the ability to recruit this talent where they are, we're going to be able to tap into this talent pool and have a, geographic, a geographically diverse footprint. Give me a sense of what this will potentially look like. You'll have the Army team, and the Army team will be made up of Mary, who's in Seattle, and John, who's in D.C., and, and Ken, who's in Alabama. But they'll all be working for, for instance, Sonny, who is the 
head of the army team. I mean, I, again, I'm making this up. Yeah, that's 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 quite right. And in fact, what's important to note is that that is, in a lot of ways, how work gets done today. The, our folks are not all located in the same office. There are folks who are distributed uh, all over the country. They come together for specific projects or initiatives, and they support a particular customer's need when it arises. Historically, those teams uh, reported into different executives who ultimately reported differently up into the chain of command, and therefore added unnecessary friction and, uh, and confusion. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, uh, even executives had to negotiate with each other in terms of capacity in their teams and availability of talent. And so by bringing these teams together under one leadership in a national sense, we can reduce some of that friction and, uh, and, and unnecessary burden and uh, let the teams do the best work that they do in service with the customer. Look, my philosophy from the very beginning uh, and has been, and this is no surprise to anyone, is that ultimately the entirety of the reason why FAS exists and the key mission that we fulfill is to add value to our customer's mission. If you're not aligned to our customers the way they want to operate, then we're unnecessarily adding burden to them on how they do business with us. There were instances in the past where our customers had to shop around a need between different regions and have to understand the organizational chart uh, of FAS before they can get the service they need. And to me, that's unacceptable. Why should a customer have to understand how we're internally organized to be able to get the job, the service they need? They should have one point of contact they need to be able to reach out to, and that person, that team, should be able to provide bring together the right expertise from across the organization in service with that customer. And so this new model is going to allow us to do just that. You have 111 agencies or some such. Maybe they're not all customers of GSA, but many are. Uh, You can't have 111 teams, I imagine. So walk me through what the org chart, for lack of a better word. I've got a lot of questions. Have you seen the org chart yet, Jason? No, not yet. Can you talk me, walk me through what that sure. org chart will look like in some ways? Even I know it's so early and you're still maybe putting pieces in place. Yeah. It changes a little bit depending on which organization you're talking to because each, each, each sub-organization's mission is somewhat different, right? So if you think of our customer and stakeholder engagement organization, the case organization, they are the front door to FAS. They are the ones who are on the ground every day working with our customers, developing early solutions, making sure that they have access to the resources they need. They're going to be fully organized around customer segments. So there may be segments underneath that organization related to the Department of Defense, civilian agencies, intelligence community, and within those departments, it's going to be further breakdown into which specific accounts uh, different account managers are assigned to. Uh, Similarly, if you look at our AAS organization, they are also uh, being reorganized into a customer segment focus. AES is going to take a little bit more time. All of this is not going to get done in the next few weeks. It's going to take uh, at least a year but while all the contracts are transitioned and all the work is uh, uh, routed uh, in a clean way as you move forward. But ultimately, the long-term vision for AES is that, again, they're going to have a team focused on each of the customer segments. So we've looked at all of the data around who our biggest customers are, where the needs are, and forecasted uh, where those needs are going to grow, and then aligned uh, teams, pulled together teams, that uh, are uh, basically bring together a similar amount of work, give or take, that they can tackle uh, together. And they, they naturally fall into certain customer segments. For example, one segment may be focused on the Army, given the Army is our biggest customer. Another segment may be covering uh, U.S. Air Force, Space Force, and the Navy together, because all three of those organizations coming together 
basically is an equivalent amount of work as the U.S. Army team is doing, for example. Another team may be focused on U.S. civilian agencies. We do a lot of work, as you know, with USDA, with HHS, with the Department of Homeland Security. All that work comes together in one, one unit. And again, they're not, they're not individual teams per agency, but those segments can then load balance. So as HHS requirements may come up, those resources from another agency uh, support could be temporarily aligned to the HHS team so that load balancing becomes much more real-time. And similarly, we're going to have an innovation segment. This this segment is going to be working on early entrance to the marketplace, so things like the CIBR program, you know, working with the DIU organization within the Department of Defense or Kessel Run or other Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Division. These organizations are constantly looking at new R&D opportunities and creating uh, pathways for new entrants into the marketplace, and our, our innovation segment is going to be working closely with them. Sonny Hashmi is Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the GSA. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Jane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory? And and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways. And that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was 
and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first How did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It's really great and and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what 
produces the results is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you- meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. So you just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Uh, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence. Because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've 
you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Poland, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life-and-death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.